that Pentecost changes everything. In the, in the creation, God intended human beings to be free and to be happy as they partnered with God, the creator, in the development of the world. Did you know that? That God was planning on a collaborative effort. We probably already have solar power now if we would have got on with business as we should have been getting on with and uh, done a better job of taking care of the world. Calvin called humans the noblest and most remarkable example of God's justice, wisdom, and goodness. Remember that according to the creation story, it's only after the creation of humans that God looks over his creative work and declares it very good. Genesis 1.31. Then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. God only spoke in the superlative after having made humanity. And that's when we hear God say, this is very good. Humans. Now, we don't get details about precisely what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God, only that this is a very good thing that God did. It's not until many thousands of years later, we're going to hear about this from Marianne next Sunday, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, we are told to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness in recreating what is, we were singing it this morning, restoration, in, in recreating what is possible for human beings because of Jesus' work in salvation. God made it possible for humans to resemble him, the Lord, in their capacity for doing good to one another. And God made us male and female with excellent capacities for reason and the remarkable human brain. It's, it still dazzles scientists. They, they really haven't figured out how this remarkable computer works on top of our shoulders. He's, he made us he made our brains useful for acquiring knowledge and growing in righteousness and holiness. He inscribed on our hearts his will and his purposes and the power to fulfill it. That is why the, the Palme d'Or legendary animator Marcelo Jovanovic entitled his film on the fall of man, The Tragedy of Man. The history of civilization is a history of cruelty, oppression, human inhuman, man's inhumanity, racial prejudice and victimization, warfare, greed, and the degradation of women and children. With every century only becoming a new technological platform for doing even greater acts of brutality. Thank God that it wasn't until the 20th century that human beings gained the power to blow up entire nations or the world would have been incinerated a thousand years ago. For example, 
When the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem between 66 AD and 70 AD, according to Josephus, 1.1 million non-combatants died in Jerusalem. But by way of comparison in World War II, 60 million non-combatants died. They were mostly civilians. Immediately following the disobedience of our human parents, life began to be transformed into a mixture of hardship and blessing. The relationship God designed to be an internal and eternal partnership would become one of the principal sources of heartbreak. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Did you ever try to imagine what the world was supposed to be like? Was it supposed to be much easier to produce a harvest? I don't know. We can only use our imaginations to think, what would it have been if Adam and Eve had been obedient to the Lord? I believe that God's intention is to give us, was to give us a world which was amenable to human creativity, invention, the acquisition of knowledge that would be a blessing to the human race. Yet relative to the biblical narrative, human corruption spread rapidly. It is summarized in one verse from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. See, I believe that God, before the creation began, had determined that the risk of creating such remarkable creatures who could also be capable of vicious cruelty was better than not creating, because before the creation existed, God had a plan to fix the mess. Before anything existed, he had already determined he was going to fix it. Meaning he was going to have his purposes fulfilled, Scripture says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, so that through Christ God would be seen as glorious as a result of his purposes being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Do you get that? Even with all the evil that humans have done to one another, God determined before the material world ever existed that the drama of humanity was one into which he was determined to triumph over so completely that his plan would stand to the praise of his glory. I was thinking about this the other day when I was watching the wedding. It was magnificent. I was thinking to myself, this will pale compared 
to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I said, wow, this is pretty, this, that building, Windsor Castle's been in use. What did you tell me, Eve? That's a long time. But imagine what it's going to be like on that day when they kick out the jams for the lamb. And, and it, it's going to be a party like we'll make the marriage of Harry and his wife seem like nothing. When Jesus Christ is, people start bowing down to him, kneeling and declaring him as the Lord and saying, this plan is awesome. This thing that God did through Jesus Christ is unbelievable. Pastor, psychologist, and theologian Michael Horton writes, all of our worldviews are stories. Christianity is not claimed to have escaped this fact. The prophets and the apostles were fully conscious of the fact that they were interpreting reality within the framework of a particular narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation as told to a particular people, Israel, for the benefit of the world. The biblical faith claims that its story is the one that God is telling. The one true God is telling this story. It's not Muhammad. It's not, it's not Buddha. It's it's not anyone else. It's, it's God himself he's telling this. It speaks of the triune God who existed eternally before creation. And we're characters in this unfolding plot, created in God's image, yet fallen into sin. We have our identity shaped by the movement of this dramatic story from promise to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The drama also has its powerful props, such as preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper. This means by which we are no longer just spectators. Every Sunday when we share in the meal together, we are participating in something profoundly spiritual that God is engaged with us in. We, we now find our identity in Christ Instead of being a supporting actor in our life story, we become part of the cast that the Spirit is recruiting for God's drama. The Christian faith is first and foremost an unfolding drama. Gerhard Voss observed, the Bible is not a dogmatic handbook, but a historical book full of dramatic interest. This story that runs from Genesis to Revelation which centers on Christ, not only richly informs our mind, it captivates the heart and the imagination, animating and motivating our action in the world. We can make a difference, church. We can, I, 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 I've been trying an experiment in my neighborhood, trying to greet my neighbors, and I'm meeting people that I never, I've lived there for 30 years and I'm meeting neighbors down the street from me and uh, they're, they're saying, hi, neighbor. <laughs> it's really sweet. When history comes to a standstill 
in sin, guilt, and death. The prophets direct God's people to God's fulfillment of his promise in a new covenant. And it begins as a completely counterintuitive story. In Genesis 12, God begins by speaking to a pagan named Abram, born in Ur, a port city on the Persian Gulf. And God makes a remarkably gracious invitation to this Abram that will hint at the unique nature that this, who this God is like, who seeks to have a personal relationship with Abram out of nowhere, literally just shows up one day and says, hey, Abram, we're going to become friends. Did you ever think about that? It's pretty remarkable. It, it will take nearly 220 years for Jacob to arrive in Egypt. Jacob spends 17 years in Egypt and dies when Joseph is 47 years old. The Jews will spend 400 years under Egyptian enslavement before God intervenes. So from the call of Abram to the appearance of Moses as the deliverer, it's over 600 years prompting Isaiah 55 to remind us, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The story of the Exodus begins with a a little teeny bitty event, a baby floating down the Nile to escape the paranoid delusions of an Egyptian pharaoh seeking to destroy any masculine potential threat to his governance of Egypt. But it is God's intention to have a people for himself, as it was from the appearance of human beings in the original creation. For the fundamental nature of the triune God is love. 1 John 4, 7 says, God is love. And in John 17, Jesus spells this out. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is a profound God who made the world to be a place where he would show off his remarkable love that he has for his son by revealing it to us. Yet from the beginning of Israel's monarchy, The inward problems of human nature plague the people of God. Prior to the rise of the monarchy is a 200-year era of the judges, one of the most twisted and corrupt periods in Israel's history. Are there exceptions? Yes. Are they rare? Yes. How is God going to change the paradigm? It must be a work that comes from the inside. Humans have made quite a show of just how rotten they are capable of being to one another. This is the great question with Athanasius, the Egyptian bishop, born in 296 A.D. and died in 373 A.D. 
wrote about in his seminal work on the Incarnation. He understood that only one who, has, who was fully human could atone for human sin, and only one who was fully divine could have the power to save us. Salvation requires both radical, sympathetic identification with the human dilemma as, real, as well as remarkable power, the kind of power that God alone possesses. Perhaps this explains why God so carefully crafted the moment when Christ would come into the world, a moment ordained before the foundations of matter, a moment as mathematically precise as any formula the world has ever formulated. Jesus was born at just the right moment, a moment that took thousands of years to bring about. Mary, Joseph, Peter, the disciples, Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, each one with a critical part to play in fulfilling God's purposes. From the first instance of Pentecost, the radical nature of the Jesus movement became apparent. Peter, who only a month before, a prior, month and a half prior to Pentecost, had been shaken by the questioning of what was likely to have been a teenage girl in the courtyard of Caiaphas, Caiaphas's palace on the night Jesus was arrested. And after Jesus rises, Peter becomes a man of courage. What a transformation. He becomes a man of who was a fearful. And uh, he's a transformed man. And from the very beginning in which the God, the Holy Spirit, sweeps over multitudes of people, they begin devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Just think about what it took to get this movement going. You, you, you had to be willing to lay your life down. Christians after Christians after Christians went to the Colosseum, gave their lives up to establish the gospel as true. Why is Pentecost so important to us? 2 Corinthians 3.17 reads, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The possibility exists for me to become the man God always intended me to be. I'm very excited about Kevin Gann becoming a grandfather. Because who knows what kind of grandfather he's going to be. He's been pretty terrific as a father. Let's just see what he does as a grandpa now. I got some things to teach you about that, brother. And so does Vinny. Yes. Anything that they want to do at grandpa's house is kosher. We always tell our we always tell Shavi, what do you want to do today, buddy? Anything, just name it. You do you want pizza at Costco and a hot dog? He says, yes. Let's go to Costco. Galatians five one reads, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God made me to be my true self. The Greek word which lies behind our word personality is a word which means mask. 
That is the way of the world. I have to be what people say I have to be, what gets me accepted, what makes me popular or loved or significant is the mask I'm expected to wear. But brothers and sisters, Peter dropped the mask the day he stood filled with the Holy Spirit and preached that message to a multitude of Jews gathered for Pentecost. First Peter tells us, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That is the real me. I was made to know God. And uh, he promises to pour his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 5.5. 5. There is no, there is condemnation, now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My Father promises me that I am free to set my mind on the Spirit and know life and peace. He tells me that His Spirit bears witness to my spirit that I am a beloved child. So if I just want to pay attention, listen, I can hear the Spirit say, You're my beloved son. I, I want you to feel that in your heart. My Father tells me, that the Spirit of the living God intercedes for me according to God's will. Romans 8.27 God's Word tells me that I am God's temple and that His Spirit... We were doing it this morning, weren't we? We had a moment in worship where I, I was really digging it. It was sweet. I was listening to my son-in-law play his electric and my other son-in-law keeping the slides moving. It was sweet. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has declared that it is for freedom's sake that he has set us free. 2 Timothy 2.12 tells me, I have a destiny, a throne. There's a throne waiting for me. I'm going to rule over... I'm going to... I don't even... can. I can't even comprehend... What is it going to be to judge an angel? What, what do you got to go in there and say, like, you got to figure out, did they good, do a good job on this project I've sent them out on? Scott Persley, you judge one of these magnificent creatures. You decide whether he did a good job or not. That's what the scriptures say. You know that, don't you? The kingdom of God is a matter of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's gather together around the table this morning.